And now without further ado, we'll also pass over to our guest speaker of today. That's Jason Mulvey-Hill. So he is the COO and also general counsel of the American Investment Council. I would like to introduce him, to welcome him first and to ask him, how is it going in, on the other side of the ponds? Hi, Jason. <laughs> Hi, how are you, Stefan? Very good to see you. And thank you so much uh, to the whole uh, LPA team for allowing me to join you today. Uh, certainly, we have uh, an interesting time and uh, going on over here in the U.S., both generally as it relates to COVID and the economic recovery, and of course, also what's going on with our industry specifically. And I, I understand you, you'd like me to sort of lay the table or set the table, if you will, for what we see in the United States as sort of challenges to private equity license to operate. Talk a little bit about what we're doing at the AIC to help defend the license to operate and, uh, and sort of talk about some opportunities as well that exist in the current environment for PE to you know, tell its positive story and thereby also uh, hopefully secure its, uh, you know, its pathways going forward. So happy to, to dive in and, and go through that if, if that's what you'd like. Jason, and also for some of our members who would not know AIC, could we call you a little bit like our cousin in the US? What are that's, the activities that, of AIC? Yes, yes, that, that's exactly right. The American Investment Council or the AIC is effectively the US equivalent of, of, of what you are in Luxembourg, what LPEA is in Luxembourg. So uh, we are the primary trade association that represents both private equity and private credit in the United States. And we represent uh, those interests not only in Washington before legislators in the Congress and members of the administration and the various regulatory agencies. We also work in select states around the United States where there are policy issues of concern for our membership, states like New York and California, Massachusetts and others. And then, of course, we also work uh, on international issues of interest, including uh, AIFMD review and, and other topics that I know you are all very actively involved in, too. Great. And we also have recently the opportunity to work together on the dedicated webinar. And once the pandemic allows, we will surely uh, make a quick visit to Washington and New York, probably. That's wonderful. We look forward to that and uh, look forward to having you in the United States and, and showing you around and letting you kick the tires over here. Absolutely. Great contacts and members on both sides. So now let's start. On the U.S. side, there have been changes uh, with policy, but also were touched by the pandemic. What has happened last year? What's happening now in the U.S.? I think our members are very interested to hear about the yeah. latest trends. What are the upcoming regulation or changes, innovations that are coming from the U.S.? Absolutely. Let me first sort of lay the, lay the groundwork a bit, as I'm sure you have experienced in Europe. The COVID year has been quite a challenge for all involved policymakers, all segments of the economy, uh, you know, including private equity. And also um, in 2020, we had elections and those elections, uh, you know, replaced one administration, uh, the Trump administration, with a new administration, the Biden administration, which tends to be a little more uh, left leaning and also perhaps a bit more skeptical on certain issues about, uh, you know, how private investment should be treated, both from a regulatory perspective and a tax perspective. Overall, However, the environment is a very closely divided country and a very closely divided Congress. And so typically that would mean that not a lot of major legislative changes happen without there being some broad bipartisan buy-in. But there are a few ways. The Republicans used this in 2017 when they were in power to pass tax reform. And now uh, the Democrats and the Biden administration are very interested in using that same procedural vehicle in the United States to pass infrastructure spending and social spending 
measures over uh, almost $2 trillion worth. And so there's a big debate that's going on now. It likely will occupy uh, the rest of this calendar year, uh, not only focused on what infrastructure priorities and additional social spending priorities the Congress should be focused on and the new administration should be focused on, but also on, and very importantly for our industry, uh, how such new proposals would quote unquote be paid for. And so uh, there have obviously been a number of proposals that have been floating around to increase taxes on businesses, not exclusively private equity businesses, but of course, there have been proposals to double the tax rate on long-term capital gains in the United States from effectively 23.8% to 43.4%. Uh, there's been a, a related effort to somewhat discriminate against carried interest capital gains specifically. Uh, this has been part of a longer-term fight on that issue that's really been around since 2007. And then, of course, there are you know, other related uh, topics and pay-fors, including rates on C-corporations and international tax changes and whatnot. As I handicap it, I think that um, you know, the, the, the Biden administration, although it's pushing its proposal, it recognizes that it will have to compromise, as most administrations have to when trying to pass large pieces of legislation. And what we are trying to do throughout the process of that legislation being developed is to remind policymakers on both sides of the aisle, and in particular, moderate Democrats who play a very key role uh, in guiding legislation in this current Congress about the value that private equity plays in their states and districts and the country writ large, and why enacting either discriminatory tax increases on uh, private equity or otherwise making private equities licensed to operate more difficult would be problematic and harmful from an overall economics perspective and, and a jobs perspective. And so, you know, specifically at a time when the economy is trying to recover, the last thing you want to do is make it harder for those types of businesses that can really help fuel growth. You don't want to make it harder for them to be able to do that. And I think by and large that that argument is one that, that is certainly works and sells with, uh, with people who are uh, controlling the administration and with policymakers in Washington. For example, uh, carried interests. Yes. Well, how are the discussions right now? Or for example, retailization. We know that uh, the yes. US also looking into that very interesting topic. What's happening yes. there? So on carried interest, I think you know, wh where we sit, we have a broad coalition in the United States that has worked for years together to prevent there being discriminatory tax increases on carried interest. And by and large, our effort again uh, this time around is to make sure that if there are any changes in the way that long-term capital gains are taxed, that carried interest capital gains is not taxed any worse than that. So right now the rates are 23.8% for most long-term capital gains. You know, we think that's a good rate. We don't see there being any need to increase that rate. In many ways, when you increase that rate, it, it discourages investment. It makes it harder for longer-term investors to operate. But if there is going to be any kind of a change, certainly carried interest capital gains shouldn't be treated any worse than any other long-term capital gain. That is a core belief and a core feeling that, that we have and have had certainly for myself personally since 2007 when I was working in the Senate and first uh, dealt with the original version of the carried interest tax increase. And so I think what we've shown over the years is when you proactively engage, when you work with allies um, in other industries, when you work with scholars who also agree with the negative economic impact of these types of tax proposals, and when of course you work with many legislators on, of all political stripe to point out how bad this could be for you know, long-term economic growth, for additional investment, uh, that tends to be a persuasive argument. And it's certainly our hope this year that it will be again here.
Uh, you mentioned retailization. You know, in the United States, and it, it is somewhat similar in Europe, but in the United States, historically, um, investing in private equity was, was something that was really left for sophisticated investors. And in the United States, it's, it's accredited investors and then sort of a higher level of sophisticated investors called a qualified purchaser. We understand in Europe that, that you're assessing sort of uh, expanding the scope of investment from sophisticated investors to so-called semi-sophisticated investors. Um, we think that's all good. In the United States, really the effort uh, has been um, expanding to a slightly larger set of retail investors. That is investors who in the United States invest in what are called 401k plans. They are retail investors. Um, and I think the idea fundamentally is when you look at all of the positive investment that private equity has done on behalf of defined benefit pension plans in the United States and university endowments in the United States and charitable foundations and other sophisticated investors in the US, you, know, you note that it, it historically private equity has been the best or one of their best performing asset classes. And our thought is that it's important as well to enable more retail investors to get access to that type of positive long-term investment over time. Last year, we were pleased that our Department of Labor uh, issued a clarifying uh, memo regarding the ability of so-called target date funds in the United States to invest in private equity in, in, in limited amount and with proper procedure. And certainly it's important to have proper procedure there. Uh, but we think that that's a step in the right direction for American retirees who you know, they have invested an awful lot in, in publicly traded securities. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and they invest in other asset classes. But if they really want to get that extra bump in their retirement, historically, if they don't have access to alternatives like private equity, they have a harder time getting as, as good performance as they otherwise could. And so we're working very closely with the new regime that has come into place at the Department of Labor and also with policymakers on both sides of the aisle to emphasize how important this is over the long term for investors. And as more large firms that, that run what are so-called ERISA plans in the United States, like Vanguard and others, start to really highlight how important an opportunity this could be for their target date funds and their retirees, I think that uh, that will go a long way to helping convince policymakers this is a net positive and it needs to be done the right way and it needs to be done responsibly. But why wouldn't you want to give more investors access to the best performing asset class? I think that there's still a ways to go. And we're not at a place yet where any retail investor can just invest you know, as much as they want in, in any fund out there. And we may never get to that place. And, that, and that's certainly fine as well. But I think that it is an, an interesting opportunity and a, a good opportunity to, to play and, and move the ball forward uh, in an area where we think it's a net positive for the overall investment community in the United States. We also share that same idea. I mean, to go progressively and then it would really make sense. So let's uh, think it through and then get uh, the right inspiration. And then if we move on to, uh, from retailization to digitalization, I mean, the words, well, uh, that word was cited many times today. We will also have a dedicated stream for our flagship conference. On your side, what's, what's your idea concerning that? Is that now a profound trend that will never change anymore and continue to evolve? I think the short answer to that question is yes. Uh, it will continue to be very, very important going forward. And, and certainly the related topic that's of tremendous interest in the United States on cybersecurity and as you digitalize, you know, how, do you, how do you also keep things secure over time? Uh, but yes, I think that's a trend that, that's going to continue. And I think firms are spending, certainly my members are spending a lot of time sorting through the best ways to, uh, to sort of handle 
some of those changes and efficiencies that you gain through digitalization, um, and also some of the challenges that, that are also present with it. As the industry has evolved over time, as there have been technological changes, policy changes, et cetera, I, I think there's nothing that's necessarily unique about this other than that it is you know, a, a very large challenge and a very large change, and, and it does move with much rapidity. And I, I would note that in the United States, we have several working groups, as you do. We have one with our chief compliance officers, and, and in two weeks' time, we have a, a, a meeting that we do with them, a virtual meeting, and where we're talking about sort of highlights and priorities for the new SEC administration. And one of those priorities that Chairman Gensler in the United States has, has articulated is you know, taking a serious look at cybersecurity and, and what firms are doing to make sure that if they are saying that they are keeping information in digital form safe and secure, what are they doing to make sure that that actually is the case? And so I suspect that that, that issue and that issue set will be with us for some time to come. That also really makes sense because uh, it would be great to advance also on topics, including the blockchain, distributed ledger technologies, in order also to make different uh, uh, industries uh, even more efficient in the future. And yes. uh, uh, Jason, we also wanted to uh, echo what you said. I mean, for the American Investment Council, we also here with the LPA and our partner Invest Europe, we also like really to contribute to, to underline the, the contribution of private equity to the real economy and also be on the job side, but also financing side. So again, here some uh, great uh, common denominator. Absolutely. If we won't tell our positive story, no one else will tell it for us. And so we do need to be able to do that. No question on all of these fronts. If we now, you mentioned, for example, AFMD before, if we would now take the other perspective, the US looking at Europe, at Luxembourg, yes. which yes. trends uh, have you monitored recently uh, any problems, obstacles you see or any opportunities in the future? What about, I don't know, sustainable finance, yeah. uh, LPs in Europe or other trends you would like to highlight? Well, well certainly um, maybe just a word on Luxembourg first, and then I can, I can maybe expand on overall views of Europe and, and specifically spend a little bit of time on AIFMD. On Luxembourg, of course, it's by far, in my view, the most sort of uh, favorable jurisdiction in Europe regarding regulation and, and structure of private funds. Our firms are very familiar with Luxembourg. We've structured many, many uh, funds in Luxembourg that certainly are very familiar with it. Um, of course, it's always good for, for Luxembourg to remain as competitive and open for uh, you know, third country AIFM as possible. And so we applaud you know, the efforts that, that you and this organization have undertaken and, and that Luxembourg writ large has, has largely undertaken to remain a very competitive pro-investment jurisdiction uh, for which to base funds. So I think that's very important. I, I think as we look at Europe more generally, and with the AIFMD review uh, now underway, certainly that issue is extremely important for us. We do invest, our, our firms and funds invest a lot in European business. We also have a number of uh, European LPs who invest along with us in our funds. And so we care about uh, very much about what happens in the European market from a investor perspective, and also from the perspective of uh, funds that, that receive investors from Europe that want to have access to funds that are managed abroad. And so uh, from, from our perspective, as the EU looks to reassess the AIFMD and, and figure out what changes are to be made there, we've worked very closely with our European allies, Invest Europe. We've also worked very closely with, with BBCA, um, you know, recognizing uh, some of the, the Brexit concerns and the Brexit issues that they are now wrestling with, as well as the EU. And um, you know, we've been very active at, at pointing out from a third country perspective, the issues of greatest interest to us. And I think if I were to 
put it at the top level, first and foremost, I would say that the AFMD is still relatively young. And it, we do not believe at this point that it needs any kind of fundamental reassessment or sort of level one assessment. There's a, there's a saying in the United States, you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. And so I think the idea is, you know, let the system work and maybe modify, you know, make some small changes around the, around the edges. But by and large, the system is relatively new. Uh, it needs to be able to work. I think by and large, participants in the market have adjusted to the way that it works and are relatively comfortable with it. From a third country perspective, obviously, there are issues that, uh, that will be raised that I know we've already commented on in January and will continue to comment on regarding um, delegation and sort of the need to allow access. And I look at all of these issues primarily from the perspective, I mean, of course, I represent U.S. firms, but I would hope that European policymakers look at these issues not only from the perspective of sort of their member state countries, but also their member state investors, right? Um, I mean, if, if you really want to have European investors have access to all of the full panoply of, of responsible investments they can, I think that's going to necessitate continued access in you know, relatively fair form to opportunities that are located outside of Europe or opportunities that are managed from outside of Europe. And so our hope is, as the European policymakers consider AIFMD changes and revisions, that they A, do not uh, you know, go overboard with such revisions, and that they continue to enable uh, European jurisdictions to allow third countries to get access to national private placement regimes, primarily for the benefit of European investors, right? European regulators don't have to do this for the benefit of, of U.S. firms, but they should be doing it for the benefit of their, of their investors and, and for their overall economies. That's our hope. That's what will happen. And as usual, let's not fix what's not broken. We also share, right. I mean, that idea, uh, just go for the small nitty-gritty things that could be helpful, but uh, let's not shoot ourselves in the foot and also make that viable in the future and also interesting for you in the U.S. because we share many common members, uh, the biggest yes. P houses in the world. And on that front, uh, any uh, advice or feedbacks you have received from them? Well, certainly our members have been, as it relates to AIFMD, uh, my members have been very actively involved in, in our internal process on that. As I said, we, we along with a number of other uh, associations in, from Europe, filed comments earlier this year uh, on the first consultation uh, on this topic. And so, yes, I think our members are very uh, interested and concerned. And, and that really runs the gamut from our largest members, our biggest members, many of whom have uh, you know, European presence, to our, our more mid-sized members that, that may not have as much of a European presence, but maybe 5 to 10% of their last fund was made up with sophisticated European investors. And those European investors like the positive returns that they're getting, and they want to have access going forward, and they, they don't want to have that access on a next fundraise impeded if it doesn't need to be. So, so certainly our firms are very actively, very interested in this topic and very actively engaged as we develop our response. Thank you, Jason. And also just to quickly finish on, on the resilience of our favorite sectors and industries. Anything there you would like to share with our audience before we move on to the Q&A or questions? Just yesterday, we released in the United States, we release a report every year that highlights the top states and districts where private equity invests. And it's primarily designed for policymakers to understand that Private equity is not something that just happens in New York and California and Illinois and Texas, but actually it happens in, you know, in everywhere uh, and, and you know, billions of dollars going to companies in Idaho and elsewhere. And so I think to me, COVID was a tremendous challenge. I think on the positive side of it, private equity really did play a meaningful role, not only in helping facilitate speedy access to vaccines and testing for vaccines, 
and other you know, PPE material and whatnot. But uh, private equity also played a very key role in helping businesses survive through the crisis and emerge on the other side, um, ready for the economic rebound. And that certainly was true for, for larger firms, but also very true for the 14,000 plus small businesses, that is businesses that are smaller than 500 employees that we support in the United States. And so I guess from my perspective, the thing that I would say is the industry has been very resilient during COVID. That's a net positive. And one of the things that we need to do in the United States uh, through the AIC and that you need to do through, through LPIA, in my humble opinion, is always remember to tell that positive story as policymakers consider what to do next to help fuel economic growth. And we're certainly going to do that here in the United States. And uh, I think it's really the, the key towards enabling and preserving the license to operate going forward. Great, Jason. And uh, in order to finish on, on a lighter note, what's happening on the AIC side? What are your plans for Q4? Any flagship events you will then do physically since you have tremendously vaccinated through the country? How is life back in, in the US? Well, it's, it's not back to pre-COVID normal yet, but I think, I think there, are, there has been tremendous progress made over the last number of months. And, and from the AIC's perspective, uh, although we are still, we have a, our virtual board meeting is tomorrow, so we will have our second board meeting of the year tomorrow. But there will be, I think, coming up many more opportunities for us to uh, to get back uh, in person. And uh, I look forward to hosting a general counsel's committee meeting that we often do in person in New York in November. And so we're making plans to return to you know more normal in-person operations in the fall. And you know we look forward to that happening. I think it'll be very helpful for all involved. Fabulous. We, we love those very positive messaging, the different, your different views, perspectives, and insights concerning the US, but also Europe. Uh, messages well noted. And again, we are very happy to organize in the future some more events with yourselves.